Part six of the Song of the Lark. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines. The Song of the Lark by Willa Seibert Cather. Part six, sections seven and eight. Seven. On Saturday night, Dr. Archie went with Fred Ottenberg to hear Tannhauser. Thea had a rehearsal on Sunday afternoon, but as she was not on the bill again until Wednesday, she promised to dine with Archie and Ottenburg on Monday, if they could make the dinner early. At a little after eight on Monday evening, the three friends returned to Thea's apartment and seated themselves for an hour of quiet talk. "'I'm sorry we couldn't have had Landry with us tonight,' Thea said, "'but he's on at Weber and Fields every night now. You ought to hear him, Dr. Archie.' he often sings the old scotch airs you used to love why not go down this evening fred suggested hopefully glancing at his watch that is if you'd like to go i can telephone and find what time he comes on he hesitated no i think not i took a long walk this afternoon and i'm rather tired i think i can get to sleep early and be so much ahead i don't mean at once however seeing dr archie's disappointed look i always like to hear landry she added he never had much voice and it's worn but there's a sweetness about it and he sings with such taste yes doesn't he may i fred took out his cigarette case it really doesn't bother your throat a little doesn't but cigar smoke does poor dr archie can you do with one of those i'm learning to like them the doctor declared taking one from the case fred proffered him landry's the only fellow i know in this country who can do that sort of thing fred went on like the best english ballad singers he can sing even popular stuff by higher lights as it were thea nodded yes sometimes i make him sing his most foolish things for me it's restful as he does it that's when i'm homesick dr archie you knew him in germany thea dr archie had quietly abandoned his cigarette as a comfortless article when you first went over yes he was a good friend to a green girl he helped me with my german and my music and my general discouragement seemed to care more about my getting on than about himself he had no money either an old aunt had loaned him a little to study on will you answer that fred fred caught up the telephone and stopped the buzz while thee went on talking to dr archie about landry telling someone to hold the wire he presently put down the instrument and approached thee with a startled expression on his face it's the management he said quietly glockler has broken down fainting fits madame reinecker is in atlantic city and schramm is singing in philadelphia tonight. they want to know whether you can come down and finish siegland what time is it eight fifty five the first act is just over they can hold the curtain twenty-five minutes thee did not move twenty-five and thirty-five make sixty she muttered tell them i'll come if they hold the curtain until i am in the dressing-room say i'll have to wear her costumes and the dresser must have everything ready then call a taxi please thee had not changed her position since he first interrupted her but she had grown pale and was opening and shutting her hands rapidly she looked fred thought terrified he half turned toward the telephone but hung on one foot have you ever sung the part he asked no but i've rehearsed it 
That's all right. Get the cab." Still she made no move. She merely turned perfectly blank eyes to Dr. Archie and said absently, "'It's curious, but just at this minute I can't remember a bar of Walkier after the first act, and I let my maid go out.' She sprang up and beckoned Archie without so much, he felt sure, as knowing who he was. "'Come with me.' She went quickly into her sleeping chamber and threw open a door into a trunk room. "'See that white trunk? It's not locked. It's full of wigs in boxes. Look until you find one marked ring two. Bring it quick.' While she directed him, she threw open a square trunk and began tossing out shoes of every shape and color. Ottenburg appeared at the door. "'Can I help you?' She threw him some white sandals with long laces and silk stockings pinned to them. "'Put those in something, and then go to the piano and give me a few measures in there, you know.' She was behaving somewhat like a cyclone now, and while she wrenched open drawers and closet doors, Ottenburg got to the piano as quickly as possible and began to herald the reappearance of the Volsung pair, trusting the memory. In a few moments Thee came out enveloped in her long fur coat, with a scarf over her head, and knitted woolen gloves on her hands. Her glassy eye took in the fact that Fred was playing from memory, and even in her distracted state a faint smile flipped over her colorless lips. She stretched out a woolly hand. The score, please, behind you, there. Dr. Archie followed with a canvas box and a satchel. As they went through the hall, the men caught up their hats and coats. They left the music room, Fred noticed, just seven minutes after he got the telephone message. In the elevator, Thee said in that husky whisper which had so perplexed Dr. Archie when he first heard it, Tell the driver he must do it in twenty minutes, less if he can. He must leave the light on in the cab. I can do a good deal in twenty minutes. If only you hadn't made me eat. Damn that duck, she broke out bitterly. Why did you? Wish I had it back, but it won't bother you tonight. You need strength, he pleaded consolingly. But she only muttered angrily under her breath, Idiot! Idiot! Ottenburg shot ahead and instructed the driver, while the doctor put Thee into the cab and shut the door. She did not speak to either of them again. As the driver scrambled into his seat, she opened the score and fixed her eyes upon it. Her face, in the white light, looked as bleak as a stone quarry. As her cab slid away, Ottenburg shoved Archie into a second taxi that waited by the curb. "'We'd better trail her,' he explained. "'There might be a hold-up of some kind.' As the cab whizzed off, he broke into an eruption of profanity. "'What's the matter, Fred?' the doctor asked. He was a good deal dazed by the rapid evolutions of the last ten minutes. "'Matter enough!' Fred growled, buttoning his overcoat with a shiver. "'What a way to sing a part for the first time! That duck really is on my conscience. It will be a wonder if she can do anything but quack. Scrambling on in the middle of a performance like this, with no rehearsal— the stuff she has to sing in there is a fright, rhythm, pitch, and terribly difficult intervals. She looked frightened, Dr. Archie said thoughtfully, but I thought she looked determined. Fred sniffed. Oh, determined? That's the kind of rough deal that makes savages of singers. Here's a part she's worked on and got ready for for years, and now they give her a chance to go on and butcher it. Goodness knows when she's looked at the score last, or whether she can use the business she's studied with this cat. Necker singing Brunhild. She may help her, if it's not one of her sore nights. 
"'Is she sore at thee?' Dr. Archie asked wonderingly. "'My dear man, Necker's sore at everything. She's breaking up. Too early. Just when she ought to be at her best. There's one story that she is struggling under some serious malady. Another that she learned a bad method at the Prague Conservatory and has ruined her organ. She's the sorest thing in the world.' If she weathers this winter, though, it'll be her last. She's paying for it with the last rags of her voice. And then, Fred whistled softly, well, what then? Then our girl may come in for some of it. It's dog-eat-dog dog in this game as in every other. The cab stopped, and Fred and Dr. Archie hurried to the box office. The Monday night house was sold out. They bought standing room and entered the auditorium just as the press representative of the house was thanking the audience for their patience and telling them that although madame glockler was too ill to sing miss kronborg had kindly consented to finish her part this announcement was met with vehement applause from the upper circles of the house she has her constituents dr archie murmured yes up there where they're young and hungry these people down here have dined too well they won't mind however they like fires and accidents and divertissements. Two siglons are more unusual than one, so they'll be satisfied. After the final disappearance of the mother of Siegfried, Ottenburg and the doctor slipped out through the crowd and left the house. Near the stage entrance, Fred found the driver who had brought Thee down. He dismissed him and got a larger car. He and Archie waited on the sidewalk, and when Kronborg came out alone, they gathered her into the cab and sprang in after her. Thee sank back into a corner of the back seat and yawned. Well, I got through, eh? Her tone was reassuring. On the whole, I think I've given you gentlemen a pretty lively evening, for one who has no social accomplishments. Rather, there was something like a popular uprising at the end of the second act. Archie and I couldn't keep it up as long as the rest of them did. A howl like that ought to show the management which way the wind is blowing. You probably know you were magnificent. I thought it went pretty well, she spoke impartially. I was rather smart to catch his tempo there, at the beginning of the first recitative, and when he came in too soon, don't you think? It's tricky in there, without a rehearsal. Oh, I was all right. He took that syncopation too fast in the beginning. Some singers take it fast there think it sounds more impassioned. That's one way. She sniffed, and Fred shot a mirthful glance at Archie. Her boastfulness would have been childish in a schoolboy. In the light of what she had done, of the strain they had lived through during the last two hours, it made one laugh, almost cry. She went on, robustly, and I didn't feel my dinner, really, Fred. I am hungry again, I'm ashamed to say, and I forgot to order anything at my hotel. Fred put his hand on the door. Where to? You must have food. Do you know any quiet place where I won't be stared at? I've still got makeup on. I do. Nice English chop house on 44th Street. Nobody there at night but theater people after the show, and a few bachelors. He opened the door and spoke to the driver. As the car turned, Thee reached across to the front seat and drew Dr. Archie's handkerchief out of his breast pocket. This comes to me naturally, she said, rubbing her cheeks and eyebrows. When I was little, I always loved your handkerchiefs, because they were silk and smelled of cologne water. I think they must have been the only really clean handkerchiefs in Moonstone. You were always wiping my face with them, when you met me out in the dust, I remember. 
Did I never have any? I think you'd nearly always use yours up on your baby brother. Thea sighed. Yes, Thor had such a way of getting messy. You say he's a good chauffeur? She closed her eyes for a moment, as if they were tired. Suddenly she looked up. Isn't it funny how we travel in circles? Here you are still getting me clean, and Fred is still feeding me. I would have died of starvation at that boarding house on Indiana Avenue if he hadn't taken me out to the Buckingham and filled me up once in a while. What a cavern I was to fill, too. The waiters used to look astonished. I'm still singing on that food. Fred alighted and gave Thee his arm as they crossed the icy sidewalk. They were taken upstairs in an antiquated lift and found the cheerful chop-room half full of supper-parties. An English company playing at the Empire had just come in. The waiters, in red waistcoats, were hurrying about. Fred got a table at the back of the room in a corner and urged his waiter to get the oysters on at once. "'Takes a few minutes to open them, sir,' the man expostulated. "'Yes, but make it as few as possible, and bring the ladies first. Then grill chops with kidneys and salad.' They began eating celery stalks at once, from the base to the foliage. Necker said something nice to me tonight. You might have thought the management would say something, but not they. She looked at Fred from under her blackened lashes. It was a stunt to jump in and sing that second act without rehearsal. It doesn't sing itself. Ottenburg was watching her brilliant eyes and her face. She was much handsomer than she had been early in the evening. Excitement of this sort enriched her. It was only under such excitement, he reflected, that she was entirely illuminated or wholly present. At other times there was something a little cold and empty, like a big room with no people in it. Even in her most genial moods there was a shadow of restlessness, as if she were waiting for something and were exercising the virtue of patience. During dinner she had been as kind as she knew how to be, to him and to Archie, and had given them as much of herself as she could but clearly she knew only one way of being really kind from the core of her heart out and there was but one way in which she could give herself to people largely and gladly spontaneously even as a girl she had been at her best in vigorous effort he remembered physical effort when there was no other kind at hand she could be expansive only in explosions old nathan meyer had seen it in the very first song fred had ever heard her sing she had unconsciously declared it. The Kronborg turned suddenly from her talk with Archie, and peered suspiciously into the corner, where Ottenburg sat with folded arms observing her. "'What's the matter with you, Fred? I'm afraid of you when you're quiet. Fortunately, you almost never are. What are you thinking about?' "'I was wondering how you got right with the orchestra so quickly there at first. I had a flash of terror,' he replied easily. She bolted her last oyster and ducked her head. So had I. I don't know how I did catch it. Desperation, I suppose. Same way the Indian babies swim when they're thrown into the river. I had to. Now it's over. I'm glad I had to. I learned a whole lot tonight. Archie, who usually felt that it behooved him to be silent during such discussions, was encouraged by her genealogy to venture. I don't see how you can learn anything in such a turmoil or how you can keep your mind on it, for that matter. Thee glanced about the room, and suddenly put her hand up to her hair. Mercy, I've no hat on. Why didn't you tell me? And I seem to be wearing a rumpled dinner dress, with all this paint on my face. 
I must look like something you picked up on Second Avenue. I hope there are no Colorado reformers about, Dr. Archie. What a dreadful old pair these people must be thinking you. Well, I had to eat. She sniffed the savor of the grill as the waiter uncovered it. Yes, drop beer, please. No, thank you, Fred. No champagne. To go back to your question, Dr. Archie, you can believe I keep my mind on it. That's the whole trick, insofar as stage experience goes, keeping right there every second. If I think of anything else for a flash, I'm gone, done for. But at the same time, one can take things in, with another part of your brain, maybe. It's different from what you get in study, more practical and conclusive. There are some things you learn best in calm and some in storm. You learn the delivery of a part only before an audience. Heaven help us, gasped Ottenburg. Weren't you hungry, though? It's beautiful to see you eat. Glad you like it. Of course I'm hungry. Are you staying over for Rheingold Friday afternoon? My dear Thee, Fred lit a cigarette. I'm a serious businessman now. I have to sell beer. I'm due in Chicago on Wednesday. I'd come back to hear you, but Fricka is not an alluring part. Then you've never heard it well done, she spoke up hotly. That German woman scolding her husband, eh? That's not my idea. Wait till you hear my Fricka. It's a beautiful part. Thee leaned forward on the table and touched Archie's arm. You remember, Dr. Archie, how my mother always wore her hair, parted in the middle and done low on her neck behind, so you got the shape of her head, and such a calm white forehead. I wear mine like that for Fricka, a little more coronet effect built up a little higher at the sides, but the idea is the same. I think you'll notice it. She turned to Ottenburg reproachfully. It's noble music, Fred, from the first measure. There's nothing lovelier than the Wanager Hasra. It's all such comprehensive sort of music, faithful. Of course, Fricka knows. The ended quietly. Fred sighed. There, you've spoiled my itinerary. Now I'll have to come back, of course. Archie, you'd better get busy about seats tomorrow. I can get you box seats somewhere. I know nobody here, and I never ask for any. Thee began hunting among her wraps. Oh, how funny! I've only these short woolen gloves, and no sleeves. Put on my coat first. Those English people can't make out where you got your lady. She's so made up of contradictions. She rose laughing and plunged her arms into the coat Dr. Archie held for her. As she settled herself into it and buttoned it under her chin, she gave him an old signal with her eyelid. I'd like to sing another part tonight. This is the sort of evening I fancy when there's something to do. Let me see. I have to sing in Trovatore Wednesday night, and there are rehearsals for the ring every day this week. Consider me dead until Saturday, Dr. Archie. I invite you both to dine with me on Saturday night, the day after Rheingold. And Fred must leave early, for I want to talk to you alone. You've been here nearly a week, and I haven't had a serious word with you. Talk for mud, Fred, as the Norwegians say. 8. The Ring of the Nibelungs was to be given at the Metropolitan on four successive Friday afternoons. After the first of these performances, Fred Ottenberg went home with Landry for tea. Landry was one of the few public entertainers who owned real estate in New York. He lived in a little three-story brick house on Jane Street in Greenwich Village, which had been left to him by the same aunt who paid for his musical education. 
Landry was born and spent the first fifteen years of his life on a rocky Connecticut farm not far from Cos Cobb. His father was an ignorant, violent man, a bungling farmer and a brutal husband. The farmhouse, dilapidated and damp, stood in a hollow beside a marshy pond. Oliver had worked hard while he lived at home, although he was never clean or warm in winter, and had wretched food all the year round. His spare, dry figure, his prominent larynx, and the particular red of his face and hands belonged to the chore boy he had never outgrown. It was as if the farm, knowing he would escape from it as early as he could, had ground its mark on him deep. When he was fifteen, Oliver ran away and went to live with his Catholic aunt on Jane Street, whom his mother was never allowed to visit. The priest of St. Joseph's Parish discovered that he had a voice. Landry had an affection for the house on Jane Street, where he had first learned what cleanliness and order and courtesy were. When his aunt died, he had the place done over, got an Irish housekeeper, and lived there with a great many beautiful things he had collected. His living expenses were never large, but he could not restrain himself from buying graceful and useless objects. He was a collector for much the same reason that he was a Catholic, and he was a Catholic chiefly because his father used to sit in the kitchen and read aloud to his hired men, disgusting exposures of the Roman Church, enjoying equally the hideous stories and the outrage to his wife's feelings. At first Landry bought books, then rugs, drawings, china. He had a beautiful collection of old French and Spanish fans. He kept them in an escritoire he had brought from Spain, but there were always a few of them lying about in his sitting-room. While Landry and his guest were waiting for the tea to be brought, Ottenburg took up one of these fans from the low marble mantel-shelf and opened it in the firelight. One side was painted with a pearly sky and floating clouds. On the other was a formal garden where an elegant shepherdess with a mask and crook was fleeing on high heels from a satin-coated shepherd. You ought not to keep these things about like this, Oliver. The dust from your grate might get at them. It does, but I get them to enjoy them, not to have them. They're pleasant to glance at and to play with at odd times like this, when one is waiting for tea or something. Fred smiled. The idea of Landry stretched out before his fire, playing with his fans, amused him. Mrs. McGinnis brought the tea and put it before the hearth old teacups that were velvety to the touch, and a pot-bellied silver cream pitcher of an early Georgian pattern, which was always brought, though Landry took rum. Fred drank his tea, walking about, examining Landry's sumptuous writing-table in the alcove, and the booker drawing in red chalk over the mantel. I don't see how you can stand this place without a heroine. It would give me a raging thirst for gallantries. Landry was helping himself to a second cup of tea, works quite the other way with me it consoles me for the lack of her it's just feminine enough to be pleasant to return to not any more tea then sit down and play for me i'm always playing for other people and i never have a chance to sit here quietly and listen ottenburg opened the piano and began softly to boom forth the shadowy introduction to the opera they had just heard will that do he asked jokingly i can't seem to get it out of my head Oh, excellently. Thee told me it was quite wonderful, the way you can do Wagner scores on the piano. So few people can give one any idea of the music. Go ahead, as long as you like. I can smoke, too. 
Landry flattened himself out on his cushions and abandoned himself to ease with the circumstance of one who has never grown quite accustomed to ease. Ottenburg played on, as he happened to remember. He understood now why Thee wished him to hear her in Rheingold. It had been clear to him as soon as Fricka rose from sleep and looked out over the young world, stretching one white arm toward the new Goderberg shining on the heights. Wotan, Jamal, Erwak, she was pure Scandinavian, this Fricka. Swedish summer, he remembered old Mr. Nathan Meyer's phrase. She had wished him to see her, because she had a distinct kind of loveliness for this part, a shining beauty like the light of sunset on distant sails. She seemed to take on the look of immortal loveliness, the youth of the golden apples, the shining body, and the shining mind. Fricka had been a jealous spouse to him for so long, that he had forgotten she meant wisdom before she meant domestic order, and that, in any event, she was always a goddess. The fricka of that afternoon was so clear and sunny, so nobly conceived, that she made a whole atmosphere about herself, and quite redeemed from shabbiness the helplessness and unscrupulousness of the gods. Her approaches to Wotan were the pleadings of a tempered mind, a consistent sense of beauty, in the long silences of her part, her shining presence was a visible complement to the discussion of the orchestra. As the themes which were to help in weaving the drama to its end first came vaguely upon the ear, one saw their import and tendency in the face of this clearest vision of the gods. In the scene between Fricka and Wotan, Ottenburg stopped. I can't seem to get the voices in there. Landry chuckled. Don't try. I know it well enough. I expect I've been over that with her a thousand times. I was playing for her almost every day when she was first working on it. When she begins with a part, she's hard to work with, so slow you'd think she was stupid if you didn't know her. Of course, she blames it all on her accompaniness. It goes on like that for weeks sometimes. This did. She kept shaking her head and staring and looking gloomy. All at once she got her line. It usually comes suddenly, after stretches of not getting anywhere at all, and after that it kept changing and clearing. As she worked her voice into it, it got more and more of that gold quality that makes her Fricka so different. Fred began Fricka's first aria again. It's certainly different. Curious how she does it. Such a beautiful idea, out of a part that's always been so ungrateful. She's a lovely thing, but she was never so beautiful as that, really. Nobody is. He repeated the loveliest phrase. How does she manage it, Landry? You've worked with her. Landry drew cherishingly on the last cigarette he meant to permit himself before singing. Oh, it's a question of a big personality, and all that goes with it. Brains, of course. Imagination, of course. But the important thing is that she was born full of color with a rich personality. That's a gift of the gods, like a fine nose. You have it or you haven't. Against it, intelligence and musicianship and habits of industry don't count at all. Singers are a conventional race. When Thee was studying in Berlin, the other girls were mortally afraid of her. She has a pretty hard hand with women, dull ones, and she could be rude, too. The girls used to call her Die Wolfin. Fred thrust his hands into his pockets and leaned back against the piano. Of course, even a stupid woman could get effects with such machinery, 
such a voice and body and face, but they couldn't possibly belong to a stupid woman, could they? Landry shook his head. It's personality. That's as near as you can come to it. That's what constitutes real equipment. What she does is interesting because she does it. Even the things she discards are suggestive. I regret some of them. Her conceptions are colored in so many different ways. You've heard her, Elizabeth? Wonderful, isn't it? She was working on that part years ago when her mother was ill. I could see her anxiety and grief getting more and more into the part. The last act is heartbreaking. It's as homely as a country prayer meeting. Might be any lonely woman getting ready to die. It's full of the thing every plain creature finds out for himself that never gets written down. It's unconscious memory, maybe, inherited memory, like folk music. I call it personality. Fred laughed, and turning to the piano, began coaching the Fricka music again. Call it anything you like, my boy. I have a name for it myself, but I shan't tell you. He looked over his shoulder at Landry, stretched out by the fire. You have a great time watching her, don't you? Oh, yes, replied Landry simply. I'm not interested in much that goes on in New York. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'll have to dress. He rose with a reluctant sigh. Can I get you anything? Some whiskey? Thank you, no. I'll amuse myself here. I don't often get a chance at a good piano when I'm away from home. You haven't had this one long, have you? Action's a bit stiff. I say, he stopped Landry in the doorway, has Thee ever been down here? Landry turned back. Yes, she came several times when I had erysipelas. I was a nice mess with two nurses. She brought down some inside window boxes, planted with crocuses and things, very cheering, only I couldn't see them or her. Didn't she like your place? She thought she did, but I fancy it was a good deal cluttered up for her taste. I could hear her pacing about like something in a cage. She pushed the piano back against the wall and the chairs into corners, and she broke my amber elephant. Landry took a yellow object some four inches high from one of his low bookcases. You can see where his leg is glued on. A souvenir. Yes, he's lemon amber, very fine. Landry disappeared behind the curtains, and in a moment Fred heard the wheeze of an atomizer. He put the amber elephant on the piano beside him, and seemed to get a great deal of amusement out of the beast. End of Part 6, Sections 7 and 8 Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah